0: We'll find your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 23, we'll be beginning in in verse 26 of Luke 23 this morning. Um, As we've traveled through this gospel of Luke, uh, time has moved fairly quickly. It might not feel that way to you, but if you actually look at the text, it moves pretty quickly Uh, from Jesus' birth to the calling of the disciples and then three years of of teaching and and ministering and uh, miracles to the crowds and to individuals that we've seen our Lord doing, and as we've come to the last few days before the the crucifixion, everything has begun to to slow down, kind of kind of like a train approaching the platform at the end of its its traveling. Right, it, it continues to to slow down this morning. The destination that Luke has been taking us to is indeed the cross, and today. We we finally glimpse that dreadful and yet precious cross of our Lord. Uh, leading up to our passage today, we've seen Peter administer the or uh, Judas administer the kiss of betrayal. We've seen our our Lord questioned in the middle of the night by by two high priests. A day break the, break, the entire Sanhedrin declared our Lord to be a blasphemer. We, we've seen Governor Pilate declare Jesus innocent, only to then send him over to another trial by, by a, another official, Herod, who also declares him innocent, but bounces him back to Pilate to be dealt with. Uh, we, we see Pilate then respond to the angry crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him, right, uh, by, by committing the most deplorable act of injustice the world has ever seen. He releases the convicted murderer, Barabbas, and, and gives over an innocent man, a, a holy God, to death by crucifixion, and, and that's where we are this morning. And so let's let's learn what happens next. Uh, let's hear this lament of our, our Lord that only appears here in Luke's gospel, uh, if you will. See, I made two mistakes this morning. I forgot my newfound glasses and my ginormous print Bible at the same time, so... I'll just see what I can make do here. Hopefully, the Lord will allow me to see this well enough up here. <clears throat> anyway, let's, let's read it. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry, carry it behind Jesus. And there fo- followed him a great multitude of the people and women, who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, admittedly, these are some strange and unsettling words that we we read today on the lips of our Lord. Please enlighten our minds to understand what Christ means by this. Soften our hearts to receive these words rightly. May we learn, may we change, may we... um, Put ourselves in submission under your word to, to learn and be changed by it. In Christ's name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. So we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is going to die. I think we all saw this coming from the first verse of Luke. Um, and if that wasn't enough, he's been telling us himself, right, ever since Luke chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 22. He's been telling us, right, I'm going to die. You, you remember, Jesus is, is there speaking and he, at the time, ominously says... The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. Remember uh, nine chapters after that in in Luke 18 when Jesus told his apostles that he's going to be mocked, that he's going to be tortured before he is killed. Or a bit after that in Luke 20, right, when Jesus is telling that parable about the the wicked tenants of the uh, the, uh, vineyard, How they murder the the owner of the vineyard's only beloved son. He's telling the story about himself. Every word which Jesus has spoken, who's about the future, every single word that he has spoken has absolutely come true. And I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that because he has promised so much to us, right? Namely, that he's going to return for for you and I, for his people, for for judgment. He's going to return and make all things new. These are realities that will come true, even if you can't see it. E- even if it doesn't feel real to you right now, it is absolutely real that, that we can trust his word will actually come about. So in verse 26, we finally, like I said, catch a glimpse of the cross. The, the cross is an interesting object. We, we think of it as this beautiful symbol. Uh, it is. I, I wear one around my neck. I've, I've worn it around my neck my entire life for the most part, ever since I came to faith as a teenager. Uh, crosses are often hanging in churches or on the walls of our homes. Many of you probably have them yourselves, but have you ever really thought about this symbol of the cross, right? But before the, the cross became the symbol of our Savior, before it became the symbol of our, uh, uh, the forgiveness of our sin, right, before all of that, it, it was simply a form of capital punishment. That was it. In other words, when, when people thought of the cross, they only thought of the death penalty. They, they thought of this, what was done to the worst of criminals in society. Now, I've pointed this out before because I find it just absolutely intriguing, but can you imagine wearing a, a beautiful silver guillotine around your necklace, right? Hanging off your neck. Look, this is my gold guillotine, Right? Or, or hanging some artistically, aesthetically beautiful, you know, electric chair on your wall that's just over your living room. Right? That would be creepy. It would be weird. See, the, the cross is a symbol of death. But, but for you and I who have faith in Jesus, the cross is a symbol of life, of eternal life, of forgiveness, of everything that we don't deserve but receive in the gospel. So then right off the bat, we learn in our passage about a man. His name is Simon, Simon of Cyrene. This is the first and only time that we learn about this man, uh, specifically. Cyrene is a a region in North Africa. If you were to look at a map today and try to find it, it would read Libya, just just west of, of Egypt is where it would be, where it is. Uh, Cyrene had a large Jewish population at the time, in fact, uh, in Acts 6, you know, when, uh, when they get in this argument with, with Stephen, the believer, and they end up actually stoning Stephen to death uh, after this argument, the, the people that begin that argument with Stephen are actually Jew, Jewish men from Cyrene. Anyway, it's, it's more than likely that Simon has traveled to Jerusalem for this Passover feast, as so many people did, to come into town. And he finds himself, you know, watching the things go on and here's this guy and as people tend to do, you know, rubbernecking they call it, to, to kind of glance in and see what's going wrong, he, he, he finds himself at the wrong place at the wrong time. At least that's how he would have viewed this, this act of God's providence in his life at that moment. Now, as we learn in the other Gospels, the the Roman soldiers compelled him, right? Compelled him, meaning they they had to force him. They had to make him carry this cross for Jesus. It wasn't something that he quickly stepped in to do. Now, to make sense about why any of this happened at all, you need to understand two things. The first one is this, is the way these crosses actually worked. worked. Uh, uh, The large wooden... uh, The cross had two different parts to it. You probably know, right? Really simple, two parts to it. Uh, The post, the vertical part, was called the stipes, which is, uh, I believe, Latin for log or tree. I'm not really, know Latin, so Kristen, log or tree? You know Latin, right? I'll put you on the spot right now. How about that? Well, We'll ask you later. (laughs) Um, The the vertical portion of the cross had another name, uh, the the, the uh, sorry sorry this is the vertical portion, and in any anyway, that would have already been at the location waiting for, for the crucifixion. The other part of the cross, the part that goes across the back, right across, uh, was called the the patulum, and that's the horizontal crossbeam. These two parts are, are joined together at the point when they reached the point the the place where the execution was going to take place. Um, the, the reason they weren't all together just waiting there is it was a Roman custom, a kind of just final indignity to make criminals actually carry their own cross to the point of their execution, at least just the the horizontal piece, right? That's the part they carried. It's a little like uh, you know, for my generation, I never got to experience this I think I'm okay with this, Um, but my dad used to tell these stories that when they were going to get a spanking, they'd have to go outside and and they'd have to pick their own uh, switch. And I remember my dad telling us that and we would think, what's what is a switch? um but the idea was you go out and i never actually seen this we didn't do that ours was already pre-selected um (laughs) but but the idea this this idea you're going to go pick the actual item which is going to 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 be the punishment in this case and 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 so the romans did that it was just another way of torturing the, the usually criminals in this case torturing our lord um and so Jesus is carrying just the cross beam, but, but even this would have weighed a lot. Uh, most estimates put it somewhere in the realm of 100 pounds. And I know you're thinking, at this point, Jesus is what, a 33-year-old man? He's he's done carpentry. He's traveled everywhere. He's fit. He's fit. You know, 100 pounds, no big deal. He could, should be able to do this. What's going on? Uh, and you're right, he should be able to do this, except, remember, he has already been beaten, he has been flogged with a whip that has metal and bone at the end, and every time you hit it, it would stick, and it's ripping off flesh, and it's, it's just tearing away all the skin from his back, there's lacerations everywhere, his flesh is raw, it's, it's oozing with blood, and while Jesus carried the beam some distance, eventually he simply could not carry it any further. Jesus is God, yes, he's divine, that is true, but... But he is God incarnate. He is truly human. He's man. He has real flesh and nerve endings. He feels pain. Like like you and I, his body has limits and, and he can only take so much, and at this point, that's what's happening. Our our Saviour knows what it's like to be exhausted, what it's like to be crushed. He knows that. So that's when the Roman soldiers grab just some guy watching this. Can you imagine? And they volunteer him, right, voluntold him that you're going to take Simon's cross, or you're going to take this crossbeam, Simon, and you're going to follow behind this man all the way to the point where we crucify him. You see, in, in some ways, Simon carrying the cross is a symbol of us, of all of us, of every man and woman's condemnation as guilty sinners, right? Because it is us who deserve this punishment. It is us that should be carrying that. Not Jesus. Even though carrying this cross of of Jesus was against Simon's will, we have reason to believe that Simon's entire life was changed by this. In Mark 15, 21, we learn that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's the way Mark writes this. And remember, Mark's writing this about 30 years after the event actually takes place. And so Mark's adding Simon's name here, right, his son's names, because these are names that the early church would recognize. Oh, we know that, right? Right? You look out there, and, and you're thinking, oh, that's, you know, George's dad. And the church thinks, oh, we know George's dad. We know him. Um, and so he's making this connection for them. And so it's, it's very, very likely that Simon's children, Alexander and Rufus, have faith in Jesus. Further, in Romans sixteen thirteen, Paul's closing his letter, and Paul writes this. He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet him. I, I can't wait till, till someday be able to hear the details. So w- w- what happened? How did this go? You carried the cross, for, you know, to the point of the execution. Then, then what happened? Because you know, you know, from this point on and in Simon's entire life, every time he's introduced to anyone in the church's life, right, hey, this is the guy that carried our Lord's cross. That's going to be his claim to fame forever at that point. In fact, in eternity, when we're introduced to Simon, that's probably the way we're going to be introduced to him hey, this is the guy that carried the Lord's cross. And we'll be like, Simon, we know you. Um, now, it's worth noting that, that Simon literally does what Jesus calls us all to do back in Luke 9:23, when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily follow me. Now, of course, there is some difference. He's carrying the Christ, Christ cross at this moment, not his own cross. Um, that, and, and this is not symbolic, right? He is literally carrying a cross in this moment. Um, so then there are, there they are, right? Jesus goes ahead, he's moving slowly, he's in excruciating pain as he continues towards the point where he'll be crucified while, while, while Simon is, is carrying this heavy crossbeam behind him, following. Uh, and from our passage last week, it would it'd be easy to believe now that, that everybody in the city, everyone in Jerusalem just hates Jesus, right? Because the picture we see This raging crowd, crucify him, crucify him. All these people that just seem to hate Jesus, even his closest disciples have scattered and abandoned him uh, in in fear. And and here we we begin to see that's just not true. in verse 27, we we learn that there's a a great multitude of people following this, watching this, and among those angry people were, were many women who were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. Mourning and lamenting for what they're seeing happen here. Now now people all respond to injustice differently. Some some people can't see the injustice that you see in the world. They just can't. And, and it's also true that you don't see injustice in the world that others see. You you, you know that. All you have to do is, you know, go and hang out with family members at some point over Thanksgiving or anything to realize, you know what, we have different ideas, different things that that really stick out to us as injustices in the world. And, And not many can even agree, right, to acknowledge what is actual injustice in the world around us. The most Common response we see others have in which we probably internally experience ourselves when we see injustice. Something that really bothers us is that we become angry, we begin to rage, we begin to shout, we protest, we riot. To just be afraid and angry, that's the way we tend to respond to, to whatever injustice really grips our heart that we see in this world. There are some following Jesus' march here to the cross who feel heard. Who feel like this is the right thing going on. This is what should happen, namely the, the Jewish leaders, namely uh, the men and women in, the, in that crowd that were, were chanting, right? The people that called for his crucifixion, uh, they're the loudest, but there's also this group that, that see what's happening and understand that it's an injustice. And, and I don't want you to, to miss their reaction. I don't want you to miss the fact that they are mourning, they are lamenting. There is sorrow in their hearts, there are tears running down their faces, and, and all the injustice on, on, on multiple sides of many issues going on in the world today. I, I have seen so much anger, I have seen so much rage, but, but, but maybe it's happened, right? I'll, I'll give a, it, maybe it's happened, I just don't see it, but, but, but one thing I'm not seeing ever is lamenting and mourning on any side of any issue. Mourning and lamenting. Can I ask you something? Because if you're like just about everyone on the planet right now, you're probably angry about some injustice in the world. And that can be a righteous anger. It is absolutely possible that what you feel is a righteous anger. It can be. Are you only bitter and vengeful because of this injustice? In other words, when is the last time that your response to injustice was that uniquely Christian response to mourn and lament? But whatever happened to Christians who know how to lament? Are we even capable of it? Now, that's not the most significant thing going on in this passage. And so I'll, I'll leave it there. I think we should learn that. It's a real thing to learn here. But, but I just want you to know, Christian, it's okay to mourn. I'm not saying there's not a place for anger, too, but it's okay to mourn. It's okay to lament when you observe or experience an injustice in this sin-stained and fallen world. <clears throat> and here in Luke 23, we are seeing inargu- uh, inarguably, without exception, the greatest injustice the world's ever known. That Christ is crucified on the cross. Another thing to see here is, is, is Luke highlights that these mourners are, are women. Right? That's a specific thing that he points out. I, as I was researching this, trying to think, why, why is he doing that? What's going on here? I, I learned one of the most interesting things that I've ever heard from uh, J.C. Ryle, something I've never heard before in my life. He, he said this, in the scriptures, there is not one single word spoken against Jesus by a woman. Not a single word. Not even by pagan women. The, the wife of, of Pilate in the other Gospels, we learn pleaded with her husband to spare Jesus' life because this wasn't right. It will later be women who anoint Jesus' body for burial. Women uh, are the last to leave his his grave. They are the first to appear there at his resurrection to be spoken to. Women often minister to the needs of our Lord as he was traveling and ministering. Uh, Men and women are certainly different, and that is by God's good design. It is a glorious thing, but our Lord... And God's word does indeed have a very high view of women. And I just want to encourage you in that when you see that. And so when Jesus sees their lamenting, these women, he is, uh, his response is interesting to say the least. It's one of the more confusing things we, we come to in Scripture. Uh, for one, he doesn't just thank them for their compassion, right? He doesn't just appreciate that. He doesn't just glance their way in pain and keep going. He goes out of his way to actually speak something to them, to address them. And in verse 28, he calls them the daughters of Jerusalem. This is a, a reference to the entire nation of Israel, and that's what he is saying to these specific women who are mourning. He is saying to all of the nation, uh, uh, to all of God's people that are in this place. Uh, what he says here, don't, don't miss this, it is a rebuke of sorts, a soft rebuke, a mild rebuke. Uh, not because they're lamenting the injustice they see, the uh, you know lamenting injustice, lamenting suffering. This is all good, but but he rebukes them here because lamenting for Jesus in this moment is is misplaced. They're, this is not right. This is not what I want you to see here. In this moment, because something far more significant is going on than just the execution of an innocent man. It's, it's not just what it looks like, right? There's something bigger going on. Listen to what the Lord speaks to these, these, these sobbing women. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. But weep for yourselves and weep for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Uh, again, Jesus is saying, pay, pay attention here. There, there's something more significant than just this unjustly execution by the civil authorities. Jesus is is. is is so concerned about something else. He's not concerned about himself in this moment. He's concerned for, for God's people, his people. And, and this is a warning to him. This is a warning to us. To, to put the warning simply, judgment is coming to you and it will be Terrible. It'll be so terrible that you are going to wish for things that you cannot imagine even wishing for right now because they're so different. Blessed are the barren. Blessed are the wombs that never bore a child. Blessed are the breasts that never nursed. These words, you know, sound terrible to us. These words would have sounded absolutely dreadful to a Jewish woman at the time for Jewish women considered it a disgrace to be barren. No, no woman at that time would have called their barrenness a blessedness. They can't even fathom that anyone could possibly compare those things together. This, this statement alone would have shocked the women who hear our Lord speaking this way and it's supposed to shock them so they can hear what's going what he wants them to understand here because Jesus is telling them that the judgment that's coming it is so awful that you do not want this for your children. You do not want them to experience this. Jesus Knows that because the people rejected the Messiah, that the city of Jerusalem is doomed to be destroyed. This actually occurs. We talked about it some point in the past, right? But this all occurs in in 70 A.D. when the Jews are revolting against the the Roman government, and the Roman government, under I believe it's Titus, a man named Titus, comes in and just destroys the city. They do horrible things to the Jewish people. It's just a massacre. And since, since many Christians knew this prophecy of our Lord, they, they overwhelmingly fled before the Romans arrived and, and, and scattered across the region, which was beautiful for the gospel. They believed the Lord's words. In this same warning here in Luke 23, Jesus says in verse 20, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Jesus is using this image that comes from Hosea 10.8. Uh, this pleading for the mountains and the hills to cover them, to fall on them, just, just crush us. But you know, nobody wants that. Can you imagine that being your, 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 what you desire in life, to just be crushed by the weight of an entire mountain? Nobody wants that. Just like nobody wants to jump out of the window of a, a hundred floor skyscraper. But those of us that are old enough to have witnessed this, to remembered it, on September 11th in 2001, we, we saw people do just that when the only other option was burning jet fuel. I mean, that's kind of the idea here, that the judgment of God will be so terrible that you'll, be, you'll just wish to be crushed by the mountains. That will seem better. Revelation 6.16 paints this picture, the, you know, the same picture, but it's not talking about Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And, and Jesus is also pointing, right, yes, to 70 A.D., but he's pointing beyond that. He's, he's pointing to some, a fuller prophecy of God's judgment for our sin. God's judgment for rejection of the Messiah. And so this all points to God's wrath. The, the, the judgment of God, it's, it's not a popular doctrine today. I don't know if you know that. Right? If you go in on work tomorrow morning and let's talk about the judgment of God. No one's gonna very few people are gonna say, that sounds interesting. Let's do that. Let's talk about the judgment of God. I love the judgment of God. No one's gonna do that. But it is a very true doctrine. It's something we must believe because Scripture teaches that. God teaches that. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 9, we, we learn that God will inflict, and I quote here, Vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Let that truth seep deep down in your soul. God is gracious, God is slow to anger. God is is patient, God, and invites you to trust in Jesus, to put your faith in Christ. Today, our our Lord opens his arms wide to sinners. There's so much grace grace in the gospel, but one day, Christ will return in glory, and on that day, for those who do not know Christ, on that day, for any whose, whose sin is not covered by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, on that day will come only vengeance. Only wrath for sin that has not been paid on the cross. The very cross that we see our Lord moving to towards in our passage today. <clears throat> the days of God's grace will come to an end at that time. And for many of us, we realized redemption. We dwell with God for all of eternity. But for others, it will be divine judgments. Now, verse 31 here is weird. It's a proverb of sorts. Um. Those of you that consider yourselves outdoorsy people, uh, you go to build a fire, what, what burns better, the the green stuff that was alive a minute ago before you ripped it off trees and stuff like that, or, or dead dry wood, what's what's better? Look at that, we got a lot of outdoorsy people in this place. Uh, The dead dry wood, that's what burns better. It's it's not right to burn green wood. It doesn't burn well. And yet here they are doing so in this illustration. Jesus is saying, I'm I'm like, that he's like a living tree and that sinful people, uh, particularly these Jewish people in Jerusalem who are rejecting the Savior, they are like dry wood. And his point is, is that, well, when I mean, Jesus is saying this, if, if this suffering, this injustice is coming to me, who is perfect and innocent, and if this green wood is about to be thrown in the fire, what do you think is going to happen to the dry, more flammable wood? What's going to happen to the wood that actually is, is primed for this, that deserves the judgment to come? How do you think that's going to go? On a larger, more eternal scale, if, if God did not spare his own son, who is perfect, absolutely perfect, if Jesus is not spared at the cross, what's going to happen to the soul of the one who is actually guilty? And so, in all this, here's how Philip Ryken beautifully summarizes what Jesus is saying, um, saying to these these women who are, are mourning, right, for this pitiful state as they look on on Christ and and just see here's a man who's unjustly been beaten and and condemned to die, right? They're just seeing the physical, temporal part of what's happening. And and Riken puts it this way. He says, the person truly to be pitied is not the Savior who died for sinners, but the sinners who die in their own sins and therefore fall under the judgment of God. In other words, don't, don't cry for Jesus. Cry for Jerusalem. Cry for the people who will not repent of their sins and cry for the people that will not trust in christ mourn lament for those souls who are in eternal it's an eternal grave danger so these are dark words of our lord but they're also incredibly hopeful words you know right if you can hear a warning that means there's hope the tornado siren is a call to find safety in a, in a basement, in a bathroom. And these words of Jesus are a call to find redemption, to find forgiveness by, by placing our faith in Jesus. In the book of Revelation, I mentioned it earlier, but chapter 6, right? I, I, there's this prophecy that says the calamities will come in the last days, that the earth will shake, that the sun will go black, the stars will fall from the skies and the mountains will fall into the seas. And in this time, God says, people are going to try to hide. They're going to try to escape all this judgment. They're going to call it to the mountains and the, and the rocks. And they're going to say this, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. They're going to want to hide from God. They're going to hide from that judgment. They're pleading for for something along the lines of annihilation, a a vain plea to just not exist anymore, and there will be no annihilation. And so the question is, are we going to listen to this warning of our Lord? I mean, have you? Will you? For, for, For Jesus wants to spare us from the wrath that we have earned. That's what the cross is about. Jesus came and lived among us for this very reason, to, to receive the suffering, the punishment that our sins rightly deserve. In, in other words, listen, Jesus does not want your sympathy for his suffering. That, that's not the goal. Some of you might remember Mel Gibson's movie um, Passion of the Christ, I think it was called. It was this huge thing and, and, and Christians everywhere got excited about it and, and, and it one of the unfortunate side effects is that it, it, people saw the, the physical pain and torment that the Lord goes through in this visual manner, and it made a lot of people feel sorry for Jesus. It made a lot of people see that and just, wow, that was horrible. It, it made a lot of people miss two things. One, that it wasn't the physical pain that our Lord went through that was the most significant. It was the wrath of, of God, right, that, it, that we deserve. It's, it's even Way beyond anything that could physically show what he's going through internally. Uh, The wrath of of all of sin that he's being crucified for on him. And and that was being missed. And and the point is, you know, it's not that we should feel sorry for Jesus. Is it injustice? Absolutely. But that's to drive us to think about what he's doing. You know, shed tears for the mercy that you receive graciously from Jesus in the gospel. That we and every other soul ever will either repent then and turn to Jesus or or will perish. I mean, a lot of these passages here at the end draw us back to it. And I know I'm, I'm talking to a room of mostly people who believe the gospel, mostly people that say, yeah, I know that. Good, know that. Remember that again, right? Remember it again. That you need a Savior. Remember that you have a Savior in Christ. But remember this, if if we stay in our unbelief, there is nothing but judgment to come. So, plead with the Lord. Plead that He'll do a work in your soul that you can let go of unbelief. Trust in the Lord. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to carry whatever cross you have for us. We, we want to mourn and lament when we observe injustice in the world. We, we do. Grant us hearts for that, but more than anything, more than all that, Lord, we ask that you would give us faith in Christ, that you'd be strengthening our faith in Christ. More than anything, we ask that you would make us worthy of the kingdom, and the only way that we can be worthy of your kingdom It is by the righteousness of Christ, which is ours simply by stopping our striving and resting in all that Jesus has accomplished for us. In the name, in the holy name of Jesus, we trust and we pray. Amen.